90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good, trying not to melt. <laughs> it, it's, it's very hot here. <laughs> I, I hear you. It's been very hot here as well. We've had some fascinating little afternoon storms and interesting outflows. We even had a land spout a couple weeks ago here. Uh, you know, I don't want to hear about your orographically induced thunderstorms, okay? Because that doesn't <laughs> happen here, and it's very frustrating. <laughs> well, you have to have topography. Yeah, orography. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yes. <laughs> well, somebody's got to be on the planes, okay? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, yep. Just taking it all in before before we ramp up to school again. So um, this will be like your first August not buying new school supplies. Are you going to be okay with that? I, I think so. <laughs> I didn't really buy new school supplies for grad school anyway. Oh, um, you're such a liar. <laughs> I, d- I didn't need the new, uh, the new pencil case or the... Uh, the new Trapper Keeper, any of that kind of thing. <laughs> Don't act like you had Trapper Keepers. <laughs> I mostly just needed, you know, 28-hour days. Yeah, as always. <laughs> well, we still need that, so. It's true. <laughs> but, you know, all these thunderstorms and everything that have been going on meteorologically out here have got me thinking a lot about weather phenomena, and we've also had some listener requests for more information on weather phenomena. So we're really yeah. happy to be joined today by Scott Dabowski to talk to us about some interesting phenomena. Hi, Scott. How are you? Hello. Thank you for having me on today. No problem. Um, I thought that maybe we did too many meteorology shows, so I'm super glad that people want to hear more about weather phenomenon, because obviously that's something we geek out on. And Scott, I'm guessing you geek out on that pretty well, too. Yeah, for sure. Not <laughs> Probably not as much as you two do, to be honest with you, but that's not a big deal. <laughs> we'll forgive you, I guess. <laughs> Well, so Scott, if you could, could you tell us a little bit uh, about your background? So, you know, what your what your training has been, and then take us into what you're working on now. Sure. So, I am a chemist by education. So, I'm currently a grad student at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um, I'm originally from Connecticut. I did my BS at University of Hartford. I graduated in 2012, and that's where I learned how to do research and that sort of thing. And that brings me here to the U of I. Uh, And for the past, I guess I'm a rising fifth year grad student. So for the better part of the last four years, I've been working on a project that involves a certain type of plasma discharge that's uh, related to the natural natural phenomenon of ball lightning. Um, That's really scary. (laughs) (laughs) And so you said that your background is in chemistry so before we get to the ball lightning which everybody including shannon is dying to do yes yes uh, i've got to ask why why chemistry so when i was growing up i was always really interested in the human body and that sort of thing so chemistry sort of naturally follows from that um and when i was in my undergrad i started doing a lot of um ultraviolet visible spectroscopy and that sort of thing. And I sort of fell in love with light and what the information that light can give us from systems and that sort of thing. Um, And, you know, I was just sort of stuck with chemistry the whole time. It's just sort of been a bug that, you know, has sort of itched at me for a little while, for lack of a better term. 
Um, and yeah, I just think that it's really interesting how, you know, molecules and atoms can interact, especially I primarily work in the gas phase. So that's my primary interest. Um, and yeah, it's just, you can solve a lot of problems with chemistry. It has a lot of real world applicability and that sort of thing. So that's sort of why I've stuck with chemistry, um, all these years, but my the chemistry that I do now is sort of on the borders of chemistry and physics. So in addition to the normal, um, you know, mixing of stuff in beakers, I really like to know, you know, what's going on in my systems electromagnetically, um, all that sort of thing. So and plasmas are which I'll talk about, I'm sure at length in a little while, they're sort of a nice mixture of chemistry and physics. So I guess I sort of found my niche there, as it were. So this is an interesting dichotomy because I have a friend that her background is in chemistry. And so we always fight about which one is more important. You know, do you need chemistry to have physics or physics to have chemistry? Sure. And so this is this is kind of a cool blending of the two. Yeah, absolutely. Then, I, I always have a or I have a professor that says um, chemists work on problems that matter and physicists work on <laughs> problems. So uh, uh. I think I think to some extent there's some truth in that. But I think, you know, physicists are much more interested in fundamentally how things work, uh, at least in my experience. So, okay. well, and for our mathematician listeners that will say that it's all applied math, we will give out Scott's contact info at the end of the show. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. We usually get to rag on engineers, but now we're uh, moving on to different (laughs) different groups today. (laughs) So you said that you work on ball plasmas, but in general, I guess, can you tell us some more about what what plasma is? I've got a, a concept in my mind, which is probably what most people think of, of some kind of glowing ball of gas floating somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but that's not really the strict <laughs> definition of plasma. So what are they and why... Why do we research them? Sure. So uh, the sort of textbook definition that you get about plasmas is that, you know, it's the it's the fourth state of matter and there's charge and all that sort of thing. But the way I like to explain it is that if you think about the four physical states of matter, uh, plasma is the highest energy form of that. So if you have a solid and you put more energy into that, it melts into a liquid. If you put more energy into that liquid, it eventually boils into a gas. Uh, But when you take a gas and you start to get it so excited that you start stripping electrons away from things, that's when you cross over into the realm of plasmas. Um, and the really cool thing about plasma that, I don't know, um, 99.9% of the observable universe is comprised of plasma. Um, so there are many different types. Um, there are your typical like fusion reactor type things for energy and that sort of thing. Um, but also the space in between the stars. So the interstellar medium is also a plasma um, as well as plasma TVs. That's fairly obvious. But even things like, you know, uh, mercury, fluorescent lights and that sort of thing. That's a great example of a plasma. Um So people have found tremendous applications of these sort of systems um, in many different arenas. Uh, One of the more exciting ones at the moment is this probably like 15 to 20 year old field known as plasma medicine, where people are using certain types of plasmas to treat wounds and cancers and that sort of thing. Uh, So this is why we like to do research on plasmas, both in a fundamental sense, learning about the interactions of different atoms and molecules and that sort of thing. But they also have a lot of applicability in different arenas and that sort of thing. So there's plasmas are a huge field of very active research at the moment. Did you say 99 percent? 
99.9 actually man that is impressive okay yeah we don't it's funny because in intro chem or intro physics you don't talk about plasmas that much you know you're always so focused on liquid solid gas phases um and then it's such a tiny part apparently sure that's right and then you can do the classic like you know discharge tube experiment to look at like the hydrogen balmer series or something and it just looks like a neon right. sign um but yeah that's all plasma so that's awesome and so a plasma when you're putting more and more energy into the matter you said electrons are getting thrown off right yeah ripped off whatever atoms and molecules are present in there so you have uh an, oh another important thing about plasmas is that their charge um by definition has to be neutral so there's no actual charge across the plasma which for lack of a better term means that the number of electrons or the number of negative charges has to equal the number of positive charges um so basically if you have a system of gas let's say i don't know like argon for example and you start putting electrical current through that argon, uh, you both generate electrons by pumping current into the system and you rip electrons off of um, the argon atoms in this case. So there's no charge across the entire system, but there can be significant charge separation in the plasma? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That makes, <laughs> that makes yeah, a that, more sense. Yeah, now. I was trying to figure that one out too. Okay, excellent. Okay, so you said that the applicability of your ball plasma research has sort of been to this natural phenomena of ball lightning. So how do you, how do you research a ball plasma? Are these numerical models, physical models? Do you get on the UFO websites and try to figure stuff out? <laughs> uh, more often than you might think, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's a really interesting, interesting uh, question to examine. So I, I guess to give you a semi long winded answer, um, my primary, my primary uh, motivation is phenomenological in that I want to understand with my ball plasma system, um, how close we can get to ball lightning and some of the behaviors of ball lightning and that sort of thing. Uh, my, ex I am purely an experimentalist. Um, so I, over the past several years have been building equipment, building instruments, all that sort of thing. Um, I do include a little bit of modeling in my work, but it's not sort of modeling in the, um, like the simulation sense of things. It's much more like kinetic rate equations and all that sort of thing. Um, so primarily I do, uh, experimental work and it's, it's been an interesting challenge over the past few years. So I want to get this out before anyone else does. Is that your Dr. Frankenstein then? <laughs> you said you're interested in medical stuff and now you're, you know, you're an experimentalist with this plasmas. So later on down the road, when something comes to life, I'm blaming you, Scott. Hey, I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so the meteorological phenomena of ball lightning itself, for those that aren't familiar, my understanding, of course, and having never seen it myself, is that it's a large ball of plasma that persists for an extended amount of time in the lower atmosphere. Is that uh, an accurate classification? Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. What, and, how low in the atmosphere do these things go? Like they can be pretty low. Yeah, they can be pretty low. They can be um, fairly close to the ground as far as I can tell. Okay. Um, and yeah, I think uh, it's mostly lower atmosphere type thing. So it's not like to be confused with like sprites or anything that's higher altitude and whatnot right. so okay and is there any speculation on 
how this phenomena happens because the, the last when we very briefly talked about it in uh, my meteorological education, it was this is an interesting phenomenon. We know next to nothing about it. <laughs> yeah, that that's essentially true. And what, what's really interesting to me is that you know society has known about this for hundreds of years. There's been many many eyewitness reports about this, and we understand very very little compared to what we understood about this. You know, two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago, that type of thing. Um, there's a lot of speculation in the literature about what may or may not cause the formation of ball lightning, why or why it might not live as long as it does and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of speculative stuff. And I think that mainly stems from the fact that this is exceedingly rare to see. So if you look at some of the uh, statistical reports of um, eyewitness accounts of ball lightning, People estimate that you have about a one in a million chance to see it, uh, or let me let me let me correct that. It's a one in a million chance that you get a ball lightning event from a sort of traditional cloud to ground lightning strike. But then that's that's across the surface of the world, right? So you have to be in the right place at the right time and have one in a million luck on top of that. So it's re it's really difficult <laughs> to find these in the field. But um, what's really incredible to me is that there was a group in China in 2014 who were out in the field observing regular thunderstorm activity with a spectrograph, and they happened to catch ball lightning by pure accident. Um, so this was a huge paper that came out a couple of years ago, and I think um, physical review letters or something like that. But it's the first, to my understanding, peer-reviewed um, observation of ball lightning and the first observation of it with scientific equipment, which was really exciting. Oh yeah. I remember when that happened for sure, because that was, that was a super cool video. Okay. So you've got, do these, is the thinking that they come from cloud to ground strikes since there's a cloud to ground lightning strike and then something induces the formation of a plasma ball? Yeah, that's basically it. Um, like I said, there's a lot of theories as to how these things form and whatnot, and none have really been experimentally validated, um, at least not to the extent that we would say this is for sure what's happening. Uh, but the, the leading theory at the moment is basically you have a cloud-to-ground lightning strike, and when you strike dirt, uh, you essentially make, uh, you rapidly oxidize um, nanoparticles in the soil, so like silicon, for example, um, and then that, that oxidation is sort of a slow-burning type thing that happens in a spherical geometry. So basically, you excite soil components with a massive amount of current and then if the conditions are just right you can get these sort of nanoparticle networks that like wrap around themselves and rotate and that's what generates the spherical sort of shape that people report for these things that's the leading theory at the moment anyway so this sounds like there could be a significant geological input into the formation of this phenomenon then yeah, I would agree with that. And in the paper that I mentioned a while ago, they saw components of soil in their emission spectra, basically. So, Oh, no know. kidding. Yeah, okay. so that, that, that lends a little bit of evidence to that theory, for sure. Okay, because, I mean, I'm assuming that there are all kinds of historical accounts of this ball lightning. It'd be interesting to go back and sort of do soil sampling at those locations. So then it wouldn't depend on actually seeing the phenomenon, but maybe you could say something about it associated with that. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the other thing is people have seen these at sea sometimes, so it may or may not be that, oh. you know, or it could be that there are multiple types of ball lightning as well. We This is how little we understand about this phenomenon. 
I didn't, I guess I didn't realize, I don't know if you did, John, that it's associated with just a normal CG strike. Uh, no, I did not. I didn't know if these came out of the bottom of thunderstorms or what, yeah. actually. And so it's interesting that, that that would definitely limit them to the lower atmosphere if, or very close to the surface, if the strike is aerosolizing, if you will, nanoparticles. Yeah. And then I guess the spherical geometry sort of makes sense from a, a charge state. Yeah. Uh, so, so the idea, Scott, is that it's actually physically consuming something as well. Uh, it, it basically that it's burning through, you know, that a big chunk of soil. And a lot of people say that if it makes a like a nice spherical hole in the ground, if it's not anything that has a lot of asymmetry to it, um, you get basically a puff of hot air that can turn into like a, a toroidal type motion, which can also generate a spherical geometry of these things. So big air gap plus burning soil gives you ball lightning, I guess. Hmm. So, <laughs> so I, I was trained as an experimentalist as well, except experimental geophysicist. And, you know, there we, okay, we can kind of make little models of a fault zone in the lab and do some experiments on it. But short of building the Rockies and creating your own thunderstorm, how do you make a ball plasma in the lab? Sure. So we do a very high energy discharge essentially and what we do is we charge very large parallel plate capacitors up to several thousand volts um, and we have a custom electrode setup that we submerge inside a solution of deionized water basically with some stuff added to it to increase the conductivity and whatnot uh, and then we send a huge pulse of current across two electrodes and the geometry of the electro of the electrodes is such that it forms a spherical shape plasma at the tip of one of our electrodes and then because of buoyant forces because we're making hot air as we make this plasma it rises up and away from the electrodes and eventually detaches um, physically from the electrodes if we do high-speed videography where we show that there is no connection between the electrode and the uh, the autonomous phase of the plasma itself um, this is what we term uh, a ball plasmoid so a plasmoid is slightly different from a plasma in that it has um, a define geometry but it's not confined to electrodes or anything physical like that um, so that's the model that we use and that's what we generate in our in our laboratory okay so you just you induce that specific geometry but it doesn't have to stay that way right right okay and so when you say a lot of current from big parallel plate capacitors are we talking hundreds of amps or kiloamps um so normally a day-to-day -day discharge will do between, I don't know, 20 and 30 amps probably. I say that like it's a small number. That's a tremendous yeah. amount of current. <laughs> yes. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the limit in which we work. So our, we, our upper bound for how far we can go is we can charge up to 10 kilovolts. Um, and our capacitors, if we use all three of them, we have around two millifarads in capacitance. So we're talking several tens of kilojoules of energy. Um, in, in this discharge so it's it's really it's pretty powerful and you know there's a nice loud pop and sizzle when this happens in the lab and that sort of thing so it's a really high energy discharge what kind of like ppe do you need to do this kind of stuff are you just like <laughs> covered in like a rubber that's 20 inches thick or what 
Uh, believe it or not, uh, it's nothing that crazy. What we do is um, because it, this is all DC stuff, uh, and the scary okay. thing—the scary thing about DC is that it can reach out and grab you uh, if you're close enough. Mm-hmm. So basically, what we do is we have a high voltage area in the lab that's basically cordoned off, and when we're running the experiment, nobody goes, you know, past the yellow line. Um, okay. and, but yeah, we we sit in the lab with it and everything like that. So hmm. that's yeah. exciting. <laughs> And so this, <laughs> I, as an instrumentation person and for long time listeners of the show, big high speed video fan, uh, <laughs> this sounds like it would be an amazing lab to work in. So how often do you do these discharges and what, what are the things that you're tweaking to try to learn about these plasmoids that you create? So sure. what are the variables that you're, the knobs you're turning? Sure. So um, the biggest thing that we change is how much energy we put into the discharge. And we change that by either changing the voltage or we can change the capacitance or we can change um, the composition of the electrolyte in which the electrodes sit and that sort of thing. But that's the biggest thing is when you vary the, uh, the input power, um, you get drastic changes in what you see, both in the lifetime of the plasma and in things like the emission spectra and that sort of thing. Hmm. So uh, this is not something that you're going to go out to some experimental equipment supplier and probably just buy a lot of the equipment (laughs) to do this. Uh, So how much of the making and experimental process was involved and how many parallel plate capacitors did you blow up in the process? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, we didn't blow up any capacitors. Uh, We did lose one uh, recently this past year, actually. And it's a little cute story. So uh, this, um, this project started at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado. Um, and it was brought here to Illinois by a student. So a lot of the equipment, um, is property of the air force actually. Um, and our three, we use three parallel plate capacitors and they were affectionately termed, uh, baby bear, mama bear, and papa bear. Um, (laughs) and unfortunately papa bear is no longer with us. Um, he he started, he started to generate, uh, a charge on his own. And that's not necessarily good when you're working with these big capacitors, (laughs) Um, so we got, we got a replacement from a colleague and that sort of thing. Um, but outside of that, um, we use, you know, the capacitors are probably the most difficult thing to get, I would say, but the rest of it is all, you know, fairly standard high voltage switching equipment. And the whole experiment actually runs off of an Arduino Uno. So it's like, you know, a very, (laughs) very small amount of code. Um, and then we also use like external instruments and that sort of thing, spectrometers and whatnot, but it's a very, it's a fairly simple setup where it's just a bunch of switches essentially and some monitoring equipment. Um, when you say fairly big, what, what kind of physical space are we talking about that these capacitors, how big are they? So they're a couple hundred pounds a piece. I think they're, they're probably between like two, 200 and 250 pounds, somewhere around there. And they're, they're about a meter off the ground. So they're pretty robust. Yes. So they're (laughs) mini fridge size. roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Okay. Yeah. And so the, the Arduino that you've got controlling all this, uh, I'm guessing with some giant series of opto isolators is starting the charging process for the capacitors and then initiates the discharge as well. 
so we um, we charge the capacitors by hand. So we have a switching bank that we do by hand because um, sometimes the Arduino likes to stop talking to the computer. So we want to be sure that we have as much physical control over the high voltage as we can. Um, but you're exactly right where we have the thing isolated from the system and the Arduino mainly controls the timing of the switches that open and close. And it also uh, coordinates us getting like current voltage uh, and time data and that sort of thing. Um, but for for more um, for more thorough analyses where you need extra instruments and that sort of thing, we usually use something external to the system because usually uh, we have to collaborate with a lot of people. So we don't like to fry other people's instruments. So we like to keep things right. as separate as we can. So yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I'm guessing that if you want to actually record the current waveform of this thing, you've got to record pretty fast and across some really, really low value shunt resistor. Is that the methodology? Uh, we use a, a Hall effect sensor to measure our current and, okay. and yeah, it's, um, we're on about the millisecond time scale, which is about as good as we can get with the Arduino that we have and the code that we're running. Ideally we'd like to go faster, but unfortunately, uh, we're limited by our Arduino in this case. Okay. So how long do these things hang around during these experiments? So a typical plasmoid discharge from start to finish will last around 400 milliseconds. Um, so this wow. is a pretty, a pretty quick thing. Um, mm -hmm. And the most interesting part of it, that autonomous phase where it exists on its own, is depending on your discharge conditions, it lives for between 100 and 200 milliseconds. Wow. Um, so it's not the tens of seconds that ball lightning has been reported to exist for, but this is one of the um, longer-lived plasma models of ball lightning that have been seen. Um, there's a couple different experimental varieties that you can have to try to reproduce ball lightning, and this is one of the better ones. Wow, really? And it's only milliseconds? That's because, I mean, tens of seconds, right? Yeah, they hang out in nature for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's interesting. And, okay, so one one question I've got here is the, the discharge through the electrolyte. Why are you using distilled water with some additional things in the soup to make it more conductive versus having, uh, say, a large air gap or actually trying to strike a physical model of the Earth? Um, so a large air gap, if we were to do something like that, you would just get an arc discharge, which would, although it could be interesting for certain things, it's not really applicable to ball lightning. Um, so basically, and the, the reason we add the, um, the different stuff to the electrolyte to increase the conductivity is basically to give a better ground. Um, so the water in which the electrode sits is essentially our ground. And if we want to make a better circuit, for lack of a better term, we'll increase the conductivity so that we have a better ground. Um, but we may not necessarily want that because the action happens above the surface of the electrolyte more than anything else. So you need to have a complete circuit, but the how complete you want it varies depending on what you're looking for, if that makes sense. Hmm, okay, yeah. Uh, so you're creating these plasmoids that last a couple hundred milliseconds then. What are you learning from those that's giving us some insight into the, the physical phenomena? Sure. So we've done a whole bunch of analyses over the past 
few years. Um, so we've looked at different things like we've used mass spectrometry to analyze which type of ions are present in there and that sort of thing. Uh, and we found things like water clusters and whatnot, which wasn't necessarily surprising, but we know that water is probably a part of what happens. Um, we've also done some emission spectroscopy, both in the optical and in the infrared. And we're looking at sort of what molecular signatures are there, or at least what things are excited enough to emit a photon and that sort of thing. Um, so we're learning, and again, from those things, we learned that uh, water is probably important. Um, and from particularly the optical uh, emission spectroscopy that we did, we're learning that um, it's probably atomic species that are more involved in this sort of thing over molecular species. Um, so we, we don't have anything super concrete about ball lightning yet, per se, um, but we're learning you know, about, I guess, these sort of spherical plasma type systems. And when you have this type of discharge geometry, uh, you see these sort of things happening. So what's the temperature inside one of these if you're adding more and more energy to go from solid liquid gas to plasma in the lab or in nature what is a a rough internal temperature and can you measure that with something like a, an ir camera uh yeah people have used like uh thermocouples and ir cameras and that sort of thing to measure the internal temperature of this the gas temperature um is i think the the most recent measurement is somewhere around 1200 kelvin or something like that that's kind of a skeptical measurement for sure um but it, it gets pretty hot uh fairly quickly uh but what's interesting about this type of plasma is that it's a it's a what's known as a non-thermal plasma so if you think of a, a fusion plasma that's really really hot and really energetic that's a thermal plasma because the electrons are just as hot as the background gas but in this system, the electrons have much more energy and higher velocity. Therefore, their temperatures are a little higher than the background gas. So this is a special type of plasma that isn't exactly equilibrated. Um, so it's, it's hot, but not enough to do a tremendous amount of damage or anything like that. It's also really short-lived. So um, like, for example, my, my colleague who graduated before I took over the project did experiments where at certain distances he held pieces of computer paper up to the plasmoid. Um, and it didn't burn computer paper, but it would burn through a chem wipe, for example. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's hot, but not crazy hot, I guess. Oh, that sounds like something students do in the lab. <laughs> hey, stick this chem wipe up there and see if it explodes. <laughs> yeah. Sounds about right. Part, part, yeah. of, part of working on a project that has no um, outside sources of funding is that you have to be creative with the experiments that you do and who you collaborate with. So <laughs> I've, I've been playing that game for the past few years now. Oh, that's excellent. I, I want to know, how could you, how could you work in this soil issue into the experimental setup you know this is obviously very interesting to me the differences in the soil and how that could affect ball lightning like how could that be done i wonder sure so a couple of groups have just done uh like microwave discharges on silicon wafers and that sort of thing to try to generate mm -hmm. this but okay. one one of my actual plans before i graduate is to fill that bucket with dirt and then do the mm -hmm. same thing and see what happens um, that's going to be a little bit tricky because I, I'm going to have flaming soil flying around yep. the lab probably. <laughs> so yeah. I'll have to be a little bit careful with that. But yeah, I definitely want to try that because I, I'm believing the, um, the cloud to ground 
uh, lightning causing uh, nanoparticle oxidation more and more these days. So I want to validate that model by doing my own sort of experiment there. So, okay. Yeah. All right. It's definitely uh, flaming dirt is definitely not how I would pitch it to the uh, health and safety people. <laughs> but, uh, but that sounds like a fascinating experiment. And just the high speed video alone, I think, would be. So I- yeah. if somebody wanted to see a high speed video of one of these lab plasmoids, is there a place they can do that? Um, so the best place to see the best high speed video is if it's OK, if I do a shameless plug for myself. Yeah, um, absolutely. I did. um Several months ago, I did a interview for the Weather Channel on their show called, I think it was called Top 10 Weather Mysteries. Um, I don't know where it's available on the web and that sort of thing, but I did include some of my own um, high-speed videography in that interview. I sent them some data files for that, so they show my raw data um, in that show. Uh, but if people are more interested in just the project in general, um, you can go to my research group's website, which is um, www.bjm.scs.illinois.edu. And that'll take you to my group's main research page. Uh, and my project is listed off of there. And we have some images of the, the ball plasmoids in the lab and that sort of thing. And you can see what I look like and that sort of thing too. So if people are curious, you can head there. And my email address is on there. I love to talk to people about this sort of thing so feel free to send me emails and that sort of thing preferably nice emails i know that mathematicians are going to be out to get me now but you know well scott i have to ask uh you've got this awesome um very authoritative looking picture on your website are these real equations behind you or did you just pick some big equations and write them up on that board oh no those are real yeah i I thought about dressing them up a little bit to make me look smarter but yeah those are um those are for uh an, an instrument that i'm building um, to do some additional diagnostics and that sort of thing. So, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, what are your future plans? You said you're uh, a rising fifth year grad student. So, what is what is life post PhD? That's a great question, and I'd love to know the answer to it. Um, <laughs> but I have about I don't know between a year and eighteen months left, and that sort of thing. Um, so. I'm trying to wrap up the projects that I'm working on now and I'm slowly be getting my job search and that sort of thing. Uh, and I'm leaning towards a postdoc somewhere. Um, I'm really interested in that plasma medicine thing I mentioned earlier. So I might move into that sort of realm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of finishing up my work and keeping my nose to the grindstone and then figuring out where to go from here. So. Yep. I think that's what we all did at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You never know what's going to happen more than six months before the end. And yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess a, a very general question that doesn't specifically pertain to your research, but sure. as an experimentalist, scientist, chemist, physicist, somebody that bridges a lot of these interdisciplinary gaps, what technologies have you the most excited about advancing science and what do you think we need? Uh, what technologies in particular or just things in general? I would go with both. Either okay. one. Um, so the, the biggest thing I think about, you know, continuing science in general and doing good science in the future is the need to do interdisciplinary research and collaborative research. Um, a lot of the fundamental stuff has been done. Right. So now we're really looking at the, especially with things for societal benefit. Um, it's where these disciplines come together that we're going to get the most benefit. Right. Um, so for, 
you know, things like new medical technologies and that sort of thing for, for, I'll use my example of plasma medicine, just because I know the most about it. You know, you need chemical engineers, physicists, biotechnical people, um, biomedical sciences people. Um, so interdisciplinary stuff I think needs to be, um, really worked on. And that should be the focus of a lot of groups is thinking a little bit less internally and more externally. Um, and I also think that the funding situation should, should sort of follow suit with that. Um, funding is becoming more and more interesting to think about over the past several years. Um, so we can only hope that, you know, organizations continue to fund not only applied sciences, but also fundamental sciences as well. Um, and I'm also a huge proponent of uh, revamping how we educate people, especially young people in the sciences. Um, I think that we've been doing things a certain way for a while and it's worked to an extent, but I think we could do much more in terms of getting younger and younger people involved and especially women in science and that sort of thing. So I mm -hmm. think a lot, a lot of focus on that uh, will help us in the future for sure. Man, if you had like one of these set up somewhere in some science museum or not even a science museum, a natural history museum, something for kids to see, I would imagine that that would be super exciting for students because you're exactly right. You know, you have to you have to get intervention very early, especially to keep women in the sciences. And this would be mind blowing to me as a little kid, I think. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've considered doing that sort of thing. And I think that we sort of gave up on that because of safety issues and that sort of thing, which yeah, is unfortunate, yeah. but yeah. So <laughs> no, no, honey, don't go over there. It'll yeah. zap the life out of you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's why it's fun, mom. God, come on. <laughs> Well, I think that's that's an excellent point in maybe pointing out that a new piece of technology is not always what we need. It's a new way of thinking about and educating about these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, I just wanted to say thank you for you guys to for inviting me on the podcast and that sort of thing. This is my first podcast, which is really exciting. So <laughs> this is a new thing for me. Awesome. Uh, and, you, and you guys were great. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on the show. And again, if anybody wants to contact me, please feel free to do so through my research group's website. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been a blast talking to you and I'm sure that you'll have some interesting research advancements and we'll have you back on at some point. Great. Sounds great. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, John. I found some of that pretty shocking. <laughs> uh, yes, it was very <laughs> electrifying. I was struck by the work. <laughs> uh, I noticed that he kept saying exciting and I really wanted to say, are you saying this on purpose or not? <laughs> but the fun paper is pretty exciting too this week. Yes. Yeah, so that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun paper Friday. Yay! Hey, I'm going to tell you, I found my cowbell. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just wait. <laughs> just wait a few more months. and then Ex Exactly. It'll make its way back to where my microphone lives. <laughs> <laughs> so this fun paper comes to us from listener Andrew, who I had the great fortune of hanging out with some at SciPy. And he said, hey, you know, I sent this fun paper. And I said, yeah, we, we did that one. And we didn't, actually. <laughs> so I'm horribly sorry. Uh, it, it's very similar to another fun paper that we did in title only. Yes, because um, I thought we had done it as well until I started to actually read it. Um, 
So this fun paper is called The Theory of Interstellar Trade by Paul Krugman. And it appears that this was written back in the 70s and has been in 1978 and has just been reprinted. And it's a pretty excellent paper. Yeah. So this was a paper that has lots of buried nuggets. There are... (laughs) Yeah. There are so many little... (laughs) things in here that i have highlighted (laughs) it's just it's great so that the idea behind this whole thing is if you're able to trade between different solar systems right trade what goods and services right well goods mostly right and so if you're trading these goods and the transit between these systems has to occur at close to the speed of light for it to even be semi-practical because it's still going to be a long trip. Yeah. Do you use the time that the goods were in transit or the time based on the planet's reference frames? Because if you're traveling close to the speed of light, relativity says that the goods will have been in transit from a for a shorter amount of time from their frame of reference, changing the whole mathematics of interest and profit and everything else. Exactly. So we were just talking about uh, when, you know, these different um, different disciplines and how they need to work together. And so this is a fantastic um, economics and, you know, astrodynamics story that, like you said, is rife with little nuggets of hilarity. Yeah. Uh, because as he says, it should be noted that while the subject of this paper is silly, the analysis actually does make sense. Uh, this paper then is a serious analysis of a ridiculous subject, which is, of course, the opposite of what is usual in economics. <laughs> right. Uh, he also says the solution is derived from economic theory and two useless but true theorems are proved. <laughs> uh, also, the footnote specifies that this research was supported by a grant from the committee to reelect William Proxmire, which <laughs> is a, a little embedded Easter egg there. So William Proxmire became famous for issuing these Golden Fleece Awards in the uh, late 70s to right. 80s. So he was a senator from Wisconsin, and we don't mean fleece as an actual thing. We mean fleece as an overcharging and you'd be not exactly truthful about goods and services, essentially. So, right. So it was uh, it it was given to things that were voted that were viewed as sort of uh, wasteful of taxpayer dollars. Uh, There have been several grants in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And so we'll we'll link the Wikipedia in on that in case you want to go down that rabbit hole. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he also has some Easter eggs in here. Uh, for example, that we're going to leave aside the you know, seemingly trivial analysis of solar system economics <laughs> and move on to work that might prove as influential as that of Adam Smith. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, the father of modern economics there. Um, so this is... Uh, it's actually a really interesting question, though, because how would you go on to do this, you know? I mean, he says himself that um, it's left as an exercise for interested readers because the author does not understand the theory of general relativity and therefore cannot do <laughs> some of this analysis himself. <laughs> yeah, and so so let's say that you get on a spaceship on Trantor. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the Asimov fans. Yep. And uh, <laughs> you load up with some cargo and you're going to bring it to Earth. Or let's say you even just buy a bond 
on train tour. <laughs> Let's say it takes you 300 years in the inertial reference frame of the planets mm-hmm. to go from train tour to Earth. Okay. Your time on the spaceship will have been shorter than that. Mm-hmm. This is the, the twins thought experiment, right? Yes, yes. So when you turn that bond in or when you sell your goods on Earth, are they worth, you know, let's let's say just random number. Let's say it's 200 years that you feel. It's not nearly this dramatic of an effect, but are they worth what that bond is after 200 years of maturation or 300 years of maturation? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so what he goes on to prove is that it would actually be worth the 300 years. It's the inertial reference frames that matter. And he says, these complications make the theory of interstellar trade appear at first quite alien to our usual trade models and presumably quite <laughs> human to alien trade theorists. <laughs> oh, it was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is, I will say that I think I zoned out on more of the economic theory in this paper than I did on the... <laughs> on the reference frame <laughs> theory. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you know, I hate to just keep throwing quotes from this paper in, but there are so many. Uh, so first, he talks about uh, futures markets, and he says he will assume then that futures markets are well futuristic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that this becomes a weighty problem in a gravitational field. Oh, boy. <laughs> Um, towards the end, he concludes that, uh, or he asks the question, is space the final frontier of economics? <laughs> right. Uh, and let's see. So figures are always good in papers. Figure one uh, shows the path that would be taken by an electromagnetic signal between Earth and Trantor, the path that would be taken by a spacecraft between Earth and Trantor, uh, if it was moving with uniform velocity, and then another path that shows uh, an initial acceleration and then a deceleration. So a more realistic mm-hmm. spacecraft path. And so E is Earth, T is Trantor. And so the line of the electromagnetic signal is, of course, ET. Yeah. <laughs> Which was a beautiful, uh, yeah, a beautiful play, even beyond using Trantor. <laughs> that was <Right>. good. <laughs> and so we, we talk some about uh, space-time plots and rotating around an axis, uh, representing ship's velocity and so on, and refers to figure two, which (laughs) figure two is just a blank space. And he says, readers who find figure two puzzling should recall that a diagram of an imaginary axis must, of course, be itself imaginary. (laughs) I remember scanning down and like waiting for it to load before I started reading. (laughs) I'm like, what is this figure? Why is it not loading? I just, gosh, it's so good. <laughs> right. And so there's, there is some math developed in here using basic relativity. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the two things that we get to here, though, are that when the two planets are in a common inertial frame, you have to use those clocks for any kind of trade. Right. Uh, the second theory was if you can hold assets on two planets at the same time and they're on the same inertial frame, that economic competition will force the interest rates on those two planets to equalize. Right. So if Earth and Trantor establish a trade relationship, 
earth Trentorian interest rates will come into equilibrium in very short order. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. And so there's, like I said, there's the math in the paper. If you care to go look at it, it's really pretty easy to work through. There's nothing too difficult here. Uh, <laughs> Except for all the economic terms. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the, the terminology was yeah. a little more problematic. Um, Arbitrage and all that stuff. Yeah. That I don't ever pay attention to. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, this was, he talks about calling up a broker and he says, even if we leave on the side that uh, non-human brokers may not have ears or telephones. <laughs> oh boy. And he points out that, um, the possibilities of continuing this research are surely limited or limitless because in curved space time, of course, this does not prevent the possibilities from being finite as well. Right. <laughs> uh, and that though... People working in this field are a small band. They know that the force is with them. Final <laughs> sentence. This was an excellent paper, Andrew. We're sorry that we thought we'd already read it. Yes, because <laughs> it and it, it's a it's a very short read. Uh, probably would take you ten minutes to get through. Totally worth it. Yes, absolutely. So that will be linked. It is open access. We'll have that linked in the show notes around with everything from our discussion and interview with Scott. But if you have someone that you would like us to talk to, a paper for us to read, or have made your own lightning simulant in your garage with parallel plate capacitors, we'd love to hear about it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Oh, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo, at geo underscore Lehman, and at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.